Well, good morning, everyone. If we haven't met before, my name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here at Kesed, and uh, let me be one of the first to wish you all a happy new year. Uh, I don't know if you realize, but this will be the one time for the next 100 years that the date will be 123-123. So uh, that means it's extra holy. Amen? <laughs> no, but I hope uh, and pray that uh, this new year is just going to be such an amazing year for you full of blessing and ultimately full of finding Jesus. So really quick, before we dive into the last week of this iconic series, I just wanna invite you to pray with me. Let's pray. Father, I just wanna say thanks so much, Lord, that uh, there is even a small grace here that we get the chance to make it around the sun one more time. And Lord, I thank you that we just got done celebrating a Christmas season in which we celebrated the fact that you put on skin and moved in among us to be with us. I pray, Lord, that that truth would not just stay on Christmas, but it would be a truth that changes us throughout the rest of the year. And as we look into next year, Lord, I wanna pray that for those moments and pockets in our life, Lord, where we're filled with despair and cynicism, would you replace them with hope? God, we look to you. We pray for your spirit to come down. And, and Lord, may we leave this room different than when we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well today, as, as I said, I'm closing out this series on Iconic, and this series uh, has been an opportunity for us over the last few weeks to look at the Christian tradition of using icons, pictures, and symbols to better understand and teach people about who God is and how he works. This has been a series on redemption, remembering that for generations in church history, the church has had this skill and this gift of redeeming the things of the world instead of alienating them. And so proclaiming that there's truth that points to God in the world around us. And the question is, is do we have eyes to see them and hearts to embrace them, to be open to them? And this final week, this, this icon that we're gonna look at today is the icon of the star. And the main goal of today, in all honesty, is to start uh, basically an ideological battle between do you prefer a star as your tree topper or an angel as your tree topper? <laughs> so in all honesty, uh, you know who you are, but who here, like really, you don't have to raise your hand, but who here prefers an angel as their tree topper? Okay, um, I gotta tell you just a little truth about myself. I just wanna be honest. Uh, the angels kind of creep me out a little bit. I don't know what it is. It's got like the porcelain doll effect where no matter what you, they look like, they look a little scary. And so I've always preferred the, the star. Um, but today we're gonna talk about this star because uh, I, ultimately the goal is not to change what you chop your tree with, but ultimately to understand the reason why the star is worthy of topping our tree with at all. And to understand that whether you look at the angels and the shepherd's story or the star and the wise men's story, um, ultimately to understand what made that star so special. Now, the thing about it is, is stars uh, were really important in the ancient world. Uh, if you think about it, uh, for most people, there was not much to do at night in the ancient world. So you looked at the stars, there wasn't an ambient light, so you could see the stars unlike any of us today. I just read recently that 80% of the United States can no longer see the Milky Way due to too much ambient light. But the ancient people could see the stars and it represented something to them. Una C. Taylor, she, she wrote this paper for NASA, said that regarding the ancient world, stars were regarded as the abode of the blessed and worshiped as divine guardians. The early Hebrews believed the sun and the moon danced forever before Adam in paradise. The Chaldeans thought the stars to be the lighted lamps suspended by strings and managed by the angels. 
Even in 350 BC, Xenophanes taught that the stars were lighted each evening and blown out in the morning by the gods. Even Homer believed that the stars were carried across the skies and chariots. Now, uh, we all know the stars were important to ancient people and oftentimes were attached to things that were divine. But I just want to tell you like, how well the ancient people knew the stars. You and I could not, very few of us, could hold a candle to. It, it was remarkable, their study of the stars. She goes on to say that there's Babylonian tablets from more than 5,000 years ago that reveal a group called the Akkadians who came down into Chaldea from the mountains of Elam and brought with them the sphere and the zodiac. And the astonishing part of it is that this, this zodiac brought to Babylonia 5,000 years ago is the, almost the same exact one we have today. Meaning, they actually got a lot right about the stars, even though they may not have understood exactly what they were. Now, uh, I don't need to debate or argue for a long time about why the stars were important or what they meant, because we all get it. The ancient people did not understand, and so they looked up to the sky for meaning, for purpose. They understood that there was a big being or beings up there that, that controlled all of this, and that reality up there was something powerful. And ultimately, it filtered throughout uh, really a lot of history, right? If you know anything about Shakespeare, you'll read about Romeo and Juliet as star-crossed lovers, right? Because they represented fate. Stars were a part of our fate and mystery and wonder. And ultimately, people looked to the stars for guidance, for hope. Uh, I want you to imagine if you've ever been camping or out in the woods where there wasn't a ton of light and you saw a star-painted sky like this. Can you think about a moment where you saw the stars in the sky so clearly? I just want you to imagine it if you can. Uh, for me, I remember when I was out in Montana and there was not a ton of light, there's not a ton in Montana, and I just was up there and I was on this hill and I was looking up at the stars and a wave of wonder and awe and curiosity flooded me, right? I just felt so small and yet significant in the midst of looking up at the abyss, and, and it made me wonder, where do I fit in with all of this? Maybe you felt that way when you look at the stars. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dumb down stars just for a second, but we are drawn to looking at a sky with white dots painted in it. They're white dots, and yet you and I can't take our eyes off of it. The stars don't move, they're the same, and yet we can't help but be fixed on it. And I think it's because deep down in us, we, like the ancient people, knew that they were important. They represent something to us, that the same thing they represented to folks in the ancient world. So we're gonna talk about that today and what exactly it represented and why it is helpful as we approach 2024. So if you have your Bibles, can you turn with me to Matthew chapter two, beginning in verse one. If you have an app or a physical Bible, feel free to go there. Now, many of you are like, we just got done with Christmas. Why are we talking about another Christmas story? I've already put away my nativity set. And if you did, I wanna say way to go, because mine's not gonna go away probably for another two or three weeks. But, but uh, I wanna tell you that most scholars believe the wise men did not come to see Jesus until about two years after his birth. So this story is actually a great post-Christmas passage because these guys didn't arrive until post-Christmas. So the wise men in your nativity, you should set them up two years after you set up your nativity. <laughs> Uh, in verse one of Matthew chapter two. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, notice the word after there, in the days of Herod the king, 
Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, really quick, uh, just mentally, just note the word saw there. We saw the star, because it's past tense, meaning they saw the star at one point, it means that they're not currently seeing it. And that's important because we're going to dive into that more. But they were guided by a star that they lost sight of. And it speaks a lot to their character, which we'll dive into a little bit more. But who are these wise men? Why are they speaking to King Herod? And where, is they, where are they from? It says from the east, but what does that mean? Now, uh, in the original language, the Greek word for wise men there is where we get the word for magi. You may have heard that word before, and some other translations translate it as magi. Uh, It's where we get our word for magician or magical as well. Now, these guys weren't like David Blaine doing card tricks uh, on the street. These guys were actually the academics of their day. And they were renowned for spiritual things. They were oftentimes accompanied, uh, they would accompany kings and give them advice and wisdom because of their study of the sky, their study of the stars. And where are they from? Are they just from like East Jerusalem? No, they're actually uh, would have been from Persia and Babylon who had melded together. And they, they journeyed from Persia and Babylon because of this star. And one thing we know is stars don't move. So you have a lot of scientists that are like, What does it mean by star? What I will tell you is there's some people who think this is a planet, like Jupiter entering the Aries constellation or Leo. I don't want to dive into any of that. I don't really, frankly, think it matters a ton other than this. These men were so good at understanding the sky and the stars that in the thousands and thousands of white dots in the sky, they could see one that was different. Now, they're from Persian Babylon, which would be modern-day Iran or Iraq. And, and the thing about it is, is that means that they traveled 800 miles. And it would have taken months and months of their life, and they would have left their friends and their family back where they were to make this journey, just because they saw a star in the sky. Like, I, when I leave my wallet in the car, and I'm in my house already, I think it's too far to go back and get my wallet. <laughs> These men saw a dot in the sky and they said, we're going to make a perilous 800-mile journey, radically upending our lives just to go see what's on the other side. And the question I want to ask you today is why? In verse 2, it says, we've come to worship him, this king, but why would that journey have been worth it? What, what did it represent to them? For, to just give you, because I don't think we're, we're adequately shocked enough by this, What these men did would be akin to you and I walking out of this room, seeing a star in the sky, and then beginning to walk on foot, or potentially by camel, from here to Monterey, California. Take a look. Uh, I remember when I was in Israel, uh, our our guy, he he was born and raised in, in Israel, and he said, the funny thing about Americans is they, like, are willing to travel thousands of miles for a vacation. But he said, in Israel, 100 miles is a long way, but in America, 100 years is a long time. And he said, for them, it's like, it's the opposite. They won't, this journey was astonishing to do this on foot and by camel, and it would have taken the better part of a half a year to a year of their lives. And the question is, is why? Why did they do it? 
And you know, one thing I love about them, because I think they are a perfect representation of what this series has been about, they looked to the stars to find God. They looked to the stars because long before they had a Bible, the stars were their Bible. And they were studying them to find meaning and reason and guidance and something that was worth living for. They gave their lives to it. And what I love about God is, is he says, I will show up there. Long before they had a Bible, they had the stars. But the interesting thing is, is they, they were able to attach the star to the prophecies about Jesus. How? And it's because there was a young man with his friend group uh, who ended up in Babylon 580 years earlier called Daniel. You may have heard their stories. And Daniel was actually put in charge of the wise men, of the magi. He was placed in charge of them almost more than a half a century earlier, half a millennia, excuse me. And he had such an influence that they were able to attach these promises to that star. It's remarkable. And I just want to make sure that that the gravity hits us. They walked 800 miles based on a star and a centuries-old prophecy. But again, the question is still valid. What would have motivated them to go 800 miles based on a star and centuries-old prophecy? Again, if you walked out of here and someone was like, I want you to go on a walk from here to Monterey, California because of something someone said in 1480, would you do it? Again, I have trouble going back to the store when I forget eggs. And so I really want us to feel the weight of what would have motivated them. What would have made them realize that it's totally worth upending every part of our lives for this. And I want to to tell you and encourage us that it was hope that on the other end of this journey that they were about to go on, a king was there who would make tomorrow better than today. That on the other end of this journey, this perilous 800 mile journey, there's a king there and he represents a better tomorrow. And so it is worth giving up everything for this journey. That is, hope is the only thing that would make 800 miles and something this insane worth it, it's hope. And when I talk about hope here, I'm not talking about wishful thinking. I'm not, like for example, I often say I hope the Seahawks beat the 49ers in the playoffs. <laughs> that, at this point in the last couple of years, is absolutely wishful thinking. I have the tears to prove it. <laughs> no, Tim Keller defines hope this way, where he says, biblical hope is life-changing certainty about the future being certain about the future in a way that it affects how you live now. It is not just, a, it's not wishful thinking, it's not just I, I, I really hope and it's not passive. Biblical hope is this confidence that digs your heels in that says I am sure that the, the king that's, on, that's in tomorrow has the power to make today's struggles tomorrow's joys. I know it and I will aim my entire being towards that end. I will live in that way. And what's interesting is, is people without hope, they lose the power to change today. Uh, John Maxwell has this great quote where he says, where there is no hope in the future, there is no power in the present. Where there is no hope in the future, there is no power in the present. 
Meaning that if you do not believe that tomorrow can be better than today, you lack the motivation, the strength, and the confidence to say, I can change today so it looks like the tomorrow I want. Hope is the secret sauce of the Christian life. It's what allows you to face your addictions. It's, it's what allows you to face your trauma. It's, it's what allows you to navigate the struggle and repair the marriages and, and reconcile with your kids. And it gives you the strength to face the unknown and to launch into uncertainty, knowing there's a king on the other side of it that, that is worthy of all of that hope. But if you're like me, frankly, 2023, I did not have much that looked like hope. It was dry. I felt stuck, and honestly, I began to sink into the quicksand that is the belief that another day is just another rotation of the earth on its axis, and another year is just the earth orbiting around the sun. And it's gonna be the same thing tomorrow that it was today, then today is the same as it was yesterday, and it's not gonna be different. And so I became apathetic and a little bit cold, a little bit dry. And the problem is, is not only when we lack belief do we lack the power to change today, the enemy is really good at replacing hope with something much darker. And that is cynicism. And friends, our culture loves cynicism. It sells it to us. To the point now where cynicism is seen as an attribute to be cynical. But cynicism is the coward's perspective to hope. Because what cynicism says is, is I refuse to believe that God can make tomorrow better than today. And therefore, we put a stone wall around our heart to not feel because of all of the hopes that have been dashed in our life, because of all the moments we had a broken heart because we believed something could be good and it didn't turn out the way we wanted. And so little by little, we wall off our heart, seal it closed, and replace hope with cynicism. And cynicism sits back and just says life is what it is. There's nothing and there's no one who can make tomorrow better than today. And if you're like me, that's a pretty apt description of 2023. But when we have properly placed hope, we can overcome anything. We can make the 800-mile journey set before us because we recognize there's a king on the other side who has the ability to make the struggle of the journey worth it. And that's, that's one thing I just want to highlight here. Again, they saw the star. They're not continuing to see the star. It's why they end up in Jerusalem and not in Bethlehem. They've lost the star, maybe for days, maybe for months. But they got a glimpse of the star and said it's still worth it to go. How many of us, when, when God is calling us to something, do we say, God, I need you to lay out the whole path. I need the star the whole way if I'm going to go. And God's got to lay out step A, step B, step C, step D, all the way through, and then I'll make it to Jerusalem. If you really want me to, to go to Bethlehem, Jesus, you gotta lay it all out for me. And these guys have the kind of hope that says, I saw a glimpse of the star and I went, not knowing what the entire journey entailed. And with the absence of the star, they go to Herod, which if you know anything about history and you know about Herod, you know is a terrifying idea. 
But they said, we're just going to go to the, the leader of the region. So he's, he probably has some answer. We don't know exactly where the star is going to have us end up, but we know we're going to go in the direction we saw it because we know there's a king over there. And in verse three, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, if you know anything about Herod the Great, he, he called himself king, but he's not actually a king. He's a governor that was placed there by Herod, Herod I mean, sorry, by Rome, but he was a raging narcissist. Uh, they said the most dangerous people, the, the, the most da- people in the most danger from Herod were his own family. <laughs> he was a terrifying figure. And he, and he was uh, concerned that someone was going to set up a coup and try to overthrow him. And so it makes sense that he's troubled by this news. But this didn't come, like this didn't pop for me until I read it this week. Notice here, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. I get why Herod's troubled. He doesn't want anything to threaten his power. But why is Jerusalem troubled? Have you ever thought about this? What makes them concerned? They've been having these promises and prophecies for millennia that a king was going to come who was going to bring justice and righteousness and peace. This figure represents the promises of their ancestors for ages. Why would they be troubled? And it's really easy when you make the Bible human. At this point, the Jewish people for the last couple centuries have had false messiah after false messiah after false messiah. People who said, I'm not king, let's rise up, let's rebel against Rome and let's stage a coup. And rebellion after rebellion after rebellion are squashed and defeated with intense violence. And when you put your hope on the line that much and your hopes are dashed, it destroys you, right? To the point where you're like, I know you're giving me this message of hope, but I don't know if I could put my heart on the line again. I don't know if I can believe again. And I don't know why I think there's someone in this room that needs to hear this. It might just be me that needs to hear it. But friends, we, we need you to hope again. I know you have a long history of dashed hopes and disappointments, enough that seem like they should last a lifetime. But I feel it in my bones, friends, we need to hope again. God's not done yet with you, with us, with this community. He's not done. We need to hope again. And the problem here is Jerusalem hasn't. In verse four, in assembling all the chief priests and the scribes with him, uh, the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Uh, They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd, uh, who will shepherd my people Israel. Uh, what's, what's really profound to me about this is you have the, the chief priests who are the people that are in charge of regulating temple worship, and you have the scribes who are the experts on Torah, the Old Testament law, uh, meaning they were experts on the Bible. The remarkable thing is, is they can, based on these wise, this wise, like this group of 70 or so wise men, they can, they can say, based on this question, oh yeah, there's a prophecy from 700 years earlier that will tell us the, the Messiah is gonna be born, in Bethlehem. They had the Bible, these wise men had the star. 
These, these religious leaders had the Bible and the journey was six miles. These wise men had a star and the journey was 800 miles. Do the chief priests and the religious leaders go? And that tells us a lot of what we need to know because I think it's a lot of people in churches just like this that are sometimes the people with the least amount of hope. And hope is the only thing that will make a journey worth it, whether it's six miles or 800 miles. But they don't go. Verse seven, then Herod summoned the wise men and secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, meaning it had appeared in the past, but it's not there now. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too too may come and worship him. Now, uh, he pulls them aside because he doesn't want the religious leaders to know that he's going to try to kill this, this child. It would have staged a, a huge riot and coup attempt. But uh, the interesting thing is we all know uh, right after this will ha- be a, a ruthless infanticide. But what's really beautiful to me is the wise men still go. And what I love is, is they reveal a lot about their heart based on what they do in light of this, this threat that they find out about from Herod. In verse nine, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Meaning this is the first time since they began their journey that they see the star again. They have made however long this journey is, they've made it this, this far without the star just seeing a glimpse of it, and that is the power of hope. That at the glimpse of what God can do on the other side of this journey, it is worth going even if the steps aren't clear along the way. And finally they see it and look at their response. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Yes, because that is what hope does, is it helps you hold on, and hope is rarely born from a place of comfort. Anne Lamont has this great quote where she says, hope begins in the dark. The stubborn hope that if you just show up and try to do the right thing, the dawn will come. You wait and watch and work, you don't give up. Even when you lose the star, You keep going, you keep fighting, you keep showing up, you keep saying, I know there's an 800 mile journey ahead of me, but I know who's on the other end of it, I know who sent the star, and he's worth it. He's worth the struggle, he's worth the fight, he's worth facing the darkness. And that's what what happened to the wise men. And verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Uh, I find it interesting, I have a three-year-old daughter, and, and so it would have been around the same age as Jesus, and I always just kind of wonder, like, if, like, you know, a couple super, like, old, wise pastors just showed up at my house and started bowing down to my three-year-old daughter, what that would do to her. <laughs> <laughs> could you imagine, like, if you've had kids, could you imagine, like, as a parent, imagine Mary is a teenage girl at this point, could you imagine what she's thinking? You know, it's like, I, I hope this doesn't warp my, my two-year-old. <laughs> but what I want to tell you is that they didn't have a Bible. They knew glimpses of the story. And yet they knew exactly what to do. They fell down and they worshipped him. Again, where are the religious leaders? They had the Bible. 
but because they no longer had hope, they didn't make the six-mile journey. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Uh, what I find interesting is the Jewish reader who Matthew's writing to here would have known exactly what these elements meant, right? Gold being a gift that was given to kings. Frankincense was the, the chief fragrance for the temple, meaning they saw him as a king and a priest, and myrrh being the primary burial spice, right? So uh, they, without even realizing it, I don't think they knew. It's only after the fact that we realize that their gifts were identifying who Jesus was and is this king priest that uh, wasn't going to sacrifice something else, but was going to sacrifice himself. And being warned in a dream, verse 12, not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And again, this reveals instantly where their hearts were. Again, they violated the order of a, of a, a political leader. Had they been found out on their way home, they could have been killed. I think they got it. Maybe not entirely, but I think they knew this is the king that will make all of my tomorrows better than today. And even if tomorrow is my last breath, I promise you I'll have better days after that. Because this king will beat death. I don't know where 2023 is finding you as we, we close out the year on this last day. Maybe you are like me and you're, you're in the season of, I don't know if tomorrow will get better. And on the scales of joy and struggle, it feels like the, the scales leaning towards struggle a lot more than joy. And maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I'm tired, dry, don't wanna put my heart on the line to hope again. I just want to remind you that maybe the wise men can be an example that we need you to hope again. I, I, I think for me, one of the moments in my life that I look back to for hope is, I remember the, one of the previous darkest moments in my life. And uh, it was when I was 10 years old and I was placed in our first group home. Uh, for those of you that know my story, uh, I ended up in foster care for a large chunk of my life. And, and the interesting thing about this group home was, is my, I, I have two sisters and we were separated. So I went to the boys group home and they went to the girls. And, and that first night in that group home, sitting in an, a room all by myself, not knowing what was going to happen to me, I think as a 10 year old, I felt like it was the end of the world. that there's no way any good can come out of this. And that it's not gonna get better. And I oftentimes like to think, if I could go back in time, if I had a time machine, what would I tell that kid, that 10-year-old version of myself? What would I have told him? Because I couldn't fix it. There was nothing anyone could really do. And I think all I could tell him are these three words. Don't lose hope. There are better tomorrows coming, I promise you. Because I know the king that rules tomorrow. And friends, I want to tell you today that I'm gonna tell you the same thing I would tell the 10-year-old version of myself or the 15-year-old version of myself or the 30-year-old the version of myself. I'm gonna tell you the same message. Don't lose hope. 
There's a king on the other end of the struggle, on the other end of the journey, on the other end of the heartbreak that can make tomorrow better. He's the king of tomorrow in the same way he's the king of today. Don't lose hope. And as we go into 2024, I think one of the helpful things is to remember that you may not get the whole picture, but sometimes God will just give you a star. Keep going. You lose sight of it, keep going. He'll bring it back. And so in a moment, I'm gonna invite the worship team up and we're gonna pray and, uh, and we're gonna take communion because communion feels like the best way to end a series like this because these are the icons and pictures Jesus gave us to say, if ever in your life you wonder, do I love you? Do I have a plan for you? You get a, a piece of bread, the most normal thing, and a, a, piece of, or in a cup of wine or juice, the most normal thing in their day. And even something as basic as this could be a reminder that I died for you because I love you. And also a reminder that I can even beat death. And so to, today, today's struggles don't mean the end. They open the door for tomorrow's resurrections. So I invite you to take communion while the worship team plays. It's gluten-free, so hopefully every one of us can participate. And take it at your own pace, but I encourage you to grab it just as that reminder as you look to 2024 that, that God's given you a star to look, if you'll just look up and look around. Let's pray. Father, I just want to, to praise you and thank you that we can hope again that you are able to make tomorrow's, or today's struggles into tomorrow's joys. You can transform anything. And that whether our journey is six miles or 800 miles, it's worth it because you're on the other end of it. But the beautiful truth of the, of the, of the world is, is that you're also with us on it. So God, may you inspire hope in us for 2024 to not settle for the version of us in 2023 and to recognize there are far, far better things ahead than anything we leave behind. And God, I pray that next year as we look at the last day of 2024, that we will see, like the wise men, a version of us that made the journey just to get a sight of you. Uh, God, I pray that this wouldn't be an empty hope, but the kind of hope born in the darkness that lights it all up. May hope be our star even when we can't see it. And may, like the wise men, may we make the journey too. In Jesus' name, amen.
much easier to begin the journey standing. And I just want to leave you maybe on this last day of 2023 with this one message, this anthem. We need you to hope again. Hope will get you through that journey. We love you. I want to wish you all a happy and safe new year and invite you all to come back next week as Pastor Danny launches a new series. Happy new year.